So welcome to the biographies class. So if you haven't been here before, we basically just look at the life of someone in the Bible, Old Testament, um, draw some reflections from it and some applications from it. Today we're going to be looking at Solomon, um, which is a very well-known one, an exciting one, but also a sad ending, as we will see. Um, But before we begin, I'm going to pray. If I haven't met you, though, my name is Mark. I'm one of the interns this year. Um, Yeah, let's pray, and then we'll get started. Dear Father, we thank you so much for another opportunity to come to study your word together. Um, We thank you for these classes. We pray that they would be helpful for us, that we would learn more about you and your word, and that our affections for you would be stronger, that we would love you more. Pray that you would be with um, the Proverbs class this morning, the Foundations class, and be with our class as well. Help the all the all the teachers to teach well, clearly, helpfully, and accurately from your word. And I pray that we would all um, just learn more as we look at uh, the life of Solomon today. Help us to see the good things and also the, the negative things and help us to learn from it. And I pray that we would love Jesus more at the end of it. So I pray that you would help us this morning. Help me to teach. Uh, in your name I pray. Amen. All right. So, yeah, we're looking at Solomon today. Uh, before we start getting into all the details, just a quick, uh, like, fast facts of Solomon. He's, the, he's king of Israel. So this is when uh, Israel is united. It's both the north and the south. It's all one united kingdom at this point. He's the, the third and the last king when the kingdom is united. So this is around 970 B.C. And he'll reign for 40 years. So if that helps you, if you like knowing, like, the timeline, David is around, around 1,000. Um, Solomon's reign begins in 970. Um, so he was the son of David, uh, but he was through Bathsheba. It was David and Bathsheba were his parents. Um, he's remembered for building the temple. He's remembered for his Proverbs. Uh, in 1 Kings 4.32, it'll say that he had at least 3,000 Proverbs. And he had over 1,000 songs. And then the books... Uh, he, He's mentioned in Proverbs as having written a lot of those, as I mentioned, and Song of Solomon is attributed to him. So as we look at um, the life of Solomon, I think it'd be helpful if we look at the background for his life first. So if we could turn to Deuteronomy 17, and we will look at the background that helps set this up. If you've been in this class, I know at least one of the teachers, maybe multiple, have brought up this passage. So um, I think it'll be helpful for us to look at it again, or if you're new, just to look at it for the first time. But I think this, this passage is important uh, because it will set up, it'll fit perfectly um, when we think about Solomon and the way that he lived as a king. So this is Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. And I'll ask for someone to read it in just a second. But what's happening here is the Lord is giving, a law, giving laws to what the king should look like. So what their king should look like. So it wasn't necessarily wrong that the people wanted a king, but they should have a certain type of king. So could someone read Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20? When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself that his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and he shall be with him, and he shall read it, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandments 
either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue along in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Thanks, Isaac. So here we have the laws for what the king should look like, what an Israelite king should look like. So what are, what are some of the things that you notice that it says? What are some of these qualifications for the king? Looks like that he shall not use his position to acquire wealth. Yeah. So there's a warning about having excessive wealth. Good. What else? He has to be an Israelite. Can't be a foreigner. Good. Good. He's supposed to be an Israelite. What else does it say? He needs to write out the the law. So he needs to know it well enough to write it out himself. Yeah. Yeah, so in the, the last three, four verses, um, some more positive things that he should be doing. So he should be copying the law, should be reading it each day so that he can learn to fear the Lord and keep all the words of his law. So he doesn't turn away. Good. Anything else? So that was something he should do. Anything else that he should not do? Or should not have. He, he shouldn't be like the other kings around and acquire wives. Yeah. So there's a warning about having lots of foreign wives. And one more. There's one more in there. Yeah, turn back to Egypt. Yeah. And and with that is he should not acquire many horses. So it may seem like a strange command, but I think it's it's a warning of having a lot of horses, meaning a big military. So he's not to be to be reliant on his own power, but he's to trust in the Lord. So yes, don't have many wives, don't have many horses, don't have excessive silver and gold. It's got to be an Israelite king. And it also says that he's got to be chosen by the Lord. And the thing he should be doing is copying the law, reading it each day so that he obeys the Lord. All right, so this is the lens through how we should see the Israelite kings. This is what they should look like. All right, so one more other piece of background information that I think would be helpful is if we look at Second Samuel Chapter 7. It's a well-known passage. But it'll come up a lot in, in the life of Solomon. All right, could someone read 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 17? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. All right, so this is a very famous passage. This is what's called the David's, uh, the covenant that God makes with David. So... You notice the word covenant didn't appear in there, but there's a psalm that tells us that it is a covenant. So in this, we see just the context. At this point in David's life, he sees that he's living in a great house, but the Ark of the Covenant is just in a tent. So he says, Lord, I want to build you a house. So there's a good heart there. But the Lord tells him, no, through, through Nathan the prophet, you're not going to build me a house. Instead, I'm going to build you a house. But the house that I'm going to build for you is not a physical one. It's your throne. It's you're going to be your offspring going to be a kingdom that lasts forever. But I will give you a son who will build a house for me. And we see these promises that there's going to be rest in the kingdom and that his son will build a house for him. And so the question that comes at the end of this is, well, 
who is the son that's going to be the king, the king forever? Who's going to be the one that's going to sing on this throne forever? That's the question that you're left wondering. And so when we get to the end of Solomon's life, this, this covenant or this promise should be in all of the people's minds. They're waiting on this king who will, who will build the house for the Lord, but who will also reign forever on the throne. So then the question is, well, which of Solomon's sons is going to do, or which of David's sons is going to do this? So we have the qualifications for what a king should be in Deuteronomy. And then in 2 Samuel, we have this promise of an eternal throne. So this is the background that sets us up for Solomon's life. So um, I'm going to read just quickly. I don't have it in your notes, but um, right before Solomon goes onto the throne, um, David gives, just real quickly, I'll read it. David gives a charge to Solomon. So it's the end of David's life. It's clear that Solomon is going to be the king. And in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9 and 10, David tells Solomon, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. So this is David's charge to Solomon, right before Solomon's going to um, rise onto the throne. And he tells, his first thing that he says to David is, make sure that you know the Lord. Make sure you know him. This is your first priority. Know him with your whole heart, your whole mind, because God knows your heart. He knows your intentions. He knows everything. So seek him. And he gives him two choices. If you seek him, you are going to find the Lord. You will have a relationship with him. But he also gives him a warning. If you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. And then he says, be careful now for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. So here we see one of the main purposes of Solomon's life is to build the house for the Lord. So David wasn't able to build it, but it'll be Solomon is the one who will build God's house, God's temple. And so then it, then it becomes clear. So this is the one who's going to build the house. Is this the one who's also going to reign forever? So um, Solomon comes into the kingdom this way. Um, we're going to look at his, the first Kings chapter three, if you'd go ahead and turn there. Um, so we're only going to, there's a lot about Solomon's life. We're only going to look at different parts of it. But at this point, Solomon has become the king. And the Lord's going to appear to Solomon twice in his life. This is the first time. And so here we have Solomon's prayer for wisdom. So if I could get someone to read, we're not going to read the whole chapter, just parts of it. Um, someone could read the first two verses of First Kings chapter 3. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord in the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Okay, good. So we already see something that's a little suspect about Solomon. He had just become king, and what does he do? He makes a marriage alliance with Pharaoh's daughter the king of Egypt. Now, first of all, that should be concerning because he's, he's marrying a foreign wife who does not serve the Lord. But another reason concerning is not only is it a foreign wife, but it's Pharaoh's daughter. There's been an explicit, explicit warning in Deuteronomy 17 to not go back to Egypt. So we already have something that's a little suspect about Solomon, but we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, the, verse, the next part of this chapter will be encouraging but we see this that's um, suspect by the end of his life when we see that he does fall. We go back and read this chapter and we can see, oh, there were warning signs all along. But so could someone read verses three through nine? Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father, and when he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to, the, to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand bird offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God asked, God said, Ask what I shall give you. 
And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of hearts toward you. You've kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted or for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, understanding, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? So, this is the Lord appearing to Solomon for the first time. Uh, he appears to him in a dream, and he asks him, <clears throat> and he asks him, "What does he want?" So, what are some of the, from this from verses three to nine? What are some of the positive things that we see about Solomon here? Shows some humility. Yeah, and how so? He admits that he's weak. How, who am I to be king over these people? Yes. So we do see a, a sign of humility here. He even calls himself, "I am but a little child." He sees this great ta- <clears throat> this great task that's ahead of him to be king over these people, and he asks for help from the Lord. Good. What other what other positive things do we see about Solomon here? His his a good theology of God's sovereignty and bringing him to the throne and caring for David. Yeah, yeah. So we've already seen that. We see here that. Um, Solomon is recognizing the Lord's goodness to him and his sovereignty. He says in verse, verse 6, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David because he walked in faithfulness and righteousness. And you've kept for him this great and steadfast love and given him a son to sit on his, on his throne this day. So the Lord's already fulfilled his promise in a sense to David that he's given him a son who would sit on the throne He's been good to him, and he's put him here. Anything else positive that we see about Solomon here? Uh, he thinks about people, the people that he's, he's uh, reigning, he's ruling. Um, because the request, you know, God has given him a chance, like, ask anything. Yeah. Mind, like, you know, give me wisdom. He didn't ask for his own, uh, you know, things that are going to be of his own personal benefit. Yeah, good. So we see humility in what he asked for, he asked for wisdom. And we also see it's an others-focused request. Yeah. So he's not asking for all these things for himself. He's asked for wisdom so that he can govern God's people. He feels the weight of the task. That's the humility, but he also wants to help other people. He wants to help the nation. Anything else? Anything else positive about Solomon? Well, it begins by saying that you love the Lord. Yeah. I think that's, that's encouraging. Yes. You didn't, didn't do it perfectly, but right. you did love the Lord. Yeah. So Solomon wasn't a perfect king from the beginning, but we do see that he had a heart for the Lord. So that's encouraging, right? Um, and then we'll also see, you can also see in verse, um, kind of what Rusty mentioned that Josh talking about good theology. He says in verse, uh, verse 8, And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted, or counted for the multitude. So he's kind of referring back to that promise to Abraham, right? I'm going to make you, you people great that you can't even number. So he's recalling the Lord's faithfulness. And then let's look at the Lord's response to, to, this, um, to this answer by Solomon. So can someone read verses 10 through 14? Well, before we go there, yeah. I have a question. Did, sure. There's some negative things in here as well. Uh, just where does Solomon worship? Yeah, he he doesn't go where the Ark of the Covenant is, you know. He doesn't go to, you know, let's let's say that the, the you know the doctrinally accurate church. He he goes to that prosperity gospel mega church out there at the at the high place in Gibeon, you know. That's where all the people go. So yeah, of course I'm gonna I'm gonna focus my offerings there. I mean the the the, the Ark of the Covenant's not there, but I mean this is this is where it's popular to worship, and it's almost like God really has mercy on him here. Yeah. He, he appears to him anyway. And we see after this that it's almost like Solomon recognizes, wow, yeah, I, I, I don't worship the Lord at, at Gibeon. I'm going to build him a house. 
I'm, I'm going to focus on where, where the Lord is at, not where people go to worship the Lord. Yeah, good. That's good. Yes. All right, so uh, could someone read verses 10 through 14? We'll see the Lord's response. And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked thyself for long life, neither hast asked for riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment, behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall arise any like unto thee. And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if thou wilt walk in my ways, and keep my statutes and my commandments, as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. Thank you. So what is the Lord's response to, to Solomon? <clears throat> he was pleased. Yeah. Yeah, the Lord is pleased with what he asks. And why, why is he pleased? He didn't have a selfish request. Yeah. Most yeah, kind of what we saw a second ago. The Lord is pleased because he didn't ask for, ask for what most people would have asked for. Most people would ask for long life or riches or the life of your enemy. So victory in all these battles. But Solomon didn't do that, so the Lord is pleased with what he asked for. So we see the Lord is very gracious to give him what he asked for. So if you were here at the beginning of the year, Jason preached a Solomon, uh, Jason preached a sermon on Solomon. And on this passage, I'd recommend you going to either re-listen to it or just to hear it for the first time if you haven't heard it. But he points out that this, um, the, what the Lord gives him is an understanding mind. It's not this super smartness, but it's wisdom. It's, he's asking for a mind in tune with God's heart and mind for the purpose of leading God's people. And the Lord is pleased with what Solomon asked for, and he gives it to him. So here we see just a little bit about the Lord right here. Um, the Lord is pleased to give his people good gifts, right? The Lord is pleased to give his people good gifts. But he does warn him at the end, if you walk in my ways, I will lengthen your days. So there's a warning given at the end too, to walk into obedience. So this is just a, a question to maybe take with you, not to answer now, but, um, or to think about today or throughout this week. How would you answer that question, right? If the Lord says, ask what you want from me, what would, what would you say? And the, the Lord's response to Solomon tells us a lot because it tells us what most people ask for, right? The long life, riches, uh, victory over his enemies. That's what most people would have asked for. It's not that those things were necessarily bad. Solomon asked for help in doing what God has called him to do. Solomon asked for what's better here. But it can be very revealing of our hearts of how we would answer that question. Maybe it'd be something good to pray about, like, Lord, what would I answer? Show me what I would answer if you ask that of me. But at this point in the life of Solomon, things are looking fairly good, right? He loves the Lord. He, the Lord asks him what he wants, and he asks for wisdom. The Lord's pleased with his answer. He's not perfect, but there are some positive things about Solomon's life. All right, so next we're going to look at Solomon building the temple. So um, if you'll turn to, to chapter 6, we're not going to go through all of, I think I have on there, chapters 5 through 8. That's more just so you know it's going to happen through, through those chapters. Um, but if someone could read just the first two verses of chapter 6. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziph, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that, the house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long. 20 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. Okay, good. So this is right. This is what Solomon is supposed to be doing. He's supposed to be building the temple for the Lord. And here we see, it says like at the 480th year after the people came out of the land of Egypt, there's debate on, on the timing of this and the years. But the point here, I think is what the, the author is doing is showing us this is a major point in history for the Israelites. This is the building of the temple. 
This is a major landmark in the history of God's people. And just a, an overview, if it'd be helpful, for these, eight, uh, these four chapters. So chapter 5 will be the preparation for the building of the temple. Chapter 6, um, the first ten, 10 verses will be the outside of the temple that's being built. There's a lot of details in here. We're not going to go through it all. but um, So five, chapter 5 is preparation. The first part of chapter 6 is the outside of the temple being built. And then in, right there in verses 11 through 13, we have this interruption. So he's building the outside, and the Lord kind of shows up in the middle of this process, and he says, chapter, or verse 11, Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, concerning this house that you are building, if you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So the Lord's calling Solomon to obedience in the midst of his building of the temple. He reminds him, remember, obedience is most important. Don't forget why you're doing all this. Don't forget who you're doing all this to. Then the rest of the chapter, uh, 14 through the end, will be the inside of the temple. So we got the outside first, the interruption from the Lord, then the inside of the temple. Chapter 7 will start off with Solomon building his palace and other buildings around it. And then chapter, se- chapter 7, verses 13 through the end, will be all the, like the furniture, all the insides and the things that go inside the temple. In chapter 8, the ark of the Lord is brought in. And then we have Solomon's prayer of dedication. So what was the purpose? What was the significance of the temple? Why is that important? Why is this a major marker in Israelites' history? Because before they just had a tent to worship God in, and it wasn't permanent, it would move around, but now they have like permanent place where they can come and worship God. Yeah, good. So it, it put a permanent place to, to worship God, right? That, that's the, the purpose, right? There's one of the main purposes, a place for the people to worship God, for them to come and worship God. What else? What else is significant about the temple? Yeah. It's kind of a symbol of the permanence of, of, of God's putting them in this land in an enduring, I mean, it's a solid structure. It's here. I am here in the land with you. Yeah. Yeah, good. And it's, yeah, I think right there that and I'm here with you is a helpful part. It's God's presence, in a sense, is to be symbolized through this temple. And while the Lord was there in the temple with them, um, we know that he ultimately does not dwell in a human building. Look at, uh, look at, I mean, in a physical building. Look at verses, chapter 8, verses 27 through, let's see, 27 through 30. Could someone read that? But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to, this, to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day. That your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. Listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when you pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So here we have Solomon's, it's the beginning of Solomon's prayer of dedication after the temple's built. So yeah, the temple was here for the people to worship God. God did not dwell here in a sense because he is far greater. He cannot just dwell in a human building. And we'll see this actually mentioned in the book of Acts in one of the sermons that God did not just dwell in a physical building. He is far bigger than that. But it's a place for worship. Right, And it's a place where people can cry out to God and ask for forgiveness. This is where all the sacrifices will happen. So um, it was a picture of a place that people would come to have a relationship with God. And we know the temple will actually point towards Jesus, who will be the ultimate way that people come to the Lord. So when Jesus comes, it's no longer go to the temple, it's come to me. Everyone who wants to have a relationship with God comes through me. And the author of Hebrews will actually say that God's people are God's house. So today, we're no longer called to build this temple, to build a great building. 
this building that we're in right now is a good thing and it helps us gather to worship God, but this is not God's building ultimately. It is God's people nowadays in the new covenant. We are God's people, or we are God's house. So at the end of this building in um, verses 10 through 11 of chapter 8, it says, When the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So we see here the ark is brought in, and God's glory descends. He's showing that he is with them here. All right, so then we're going to look at the end of um, chapter 8. So the temple's been built. Solomon just finished this long prayer of dedication. And then we get to this benediction, his word to the people. Um, So could someone read the end of chapter 8, verses 54 through 61? 54 through 61. Now Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord. He arose from before the altar of the Lord, for he had knelt with hands outstretched toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him, to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant, and the cause of his people Israel, as each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. So what do we, what do we notice about in these verses about Solomon's benediction, his word to the people? What are some things that you notice that are they're good, bad? What do you notice? What are some observations? God is faithful. Yeah. To follow through, despite all the ups and downs where Israel had traversed since Egypt, that God came through in his word. Yeah, that's great. He's, this is what the king's doing. He's reminding the people, the Lord has been faithful to us. We've not been faithful, but the Lord's been faithful. He, not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord promised that he would save them out of Egypt, and he did. The Lord promised that he would bring them into a new land, and he did. And the Lord promised that he would build this temple, and he did. So good, yeah, the Lord is faithful. Any other observations from these verses? He gives the same warning that the Lord gives him to make sure they incline their hearts to him, walk his ways and commandments. Yeah, good. So this is what the king was supposed to do, right? He's warning them exactly what Solomon had been warned. We were to walk in obedience says in verse 61, Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord. This is what David said to Solomon. To walk in obedience to his commands. Good. Anything else that you observe here that's helpful? He, he recognizes too that the ability to incline our hearts to him is not something that we ourselves can do in our own strength, but rather we need him to help us. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Here we see some of that wisdom, right? That the Lord... Gave Solomon. He sees that we cannot make our own hearts. He asked for the Lord to incline their hearts towards him. That's really good. If you go up a, a verse earlier to verse 53, yeah. it talks about how the Lord separates out his people. He, mm-hmm. he makes them distinctive. He is He is what makes them distinctive. And so yeah. that's, again, that's, that's what, what God's doing. It's nothing special in, in these people that, that Solomon's ruling. Yeah, good. So it's the Lord has chosen him. And then look at verse 62 along with it. That's, it goes well with verse 60, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. So this temple that's being built, the people are supposed to be a light to the nations, right? So it's not just about Israel. He does separate them, but he does it for the purpose of highlighting who he is so that his glory may be known to all the peoples of the earth so that they, they would know that just the Lord is God. There's only one. So yeah, we, right here we have an example of 
This is exactly what the king is supposed to be doing. This is what the king of Israel is supposed to be doing. He's supposed to be reminding the people of God's faithfulness. He's supposed to be showing them that they are light to the nations. He's supposed to warn them to walk in obedience. And as you'll see, if you keep reading through the the book of Kings, the people often followed the way that the king lived. They followed in his path. And so here we have a positive, um, like Solomon's doing well here. Um, He's doing exactly what the king is supposed to be doing. And let's look at the people's response. Verse 66, can someone read that? On the eighth day, he sent the people away, and they blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. So Solomon sends the people home. They are joyful. They're glad of heart for all the good, all good that the Lord has shown them. This is exactly what the king is supposed to do. He's helped the people walk in obedience. But not only in obedience, but in joy in the Lord. And all is good, at least for now. All right, um, let's look at right after that, chapter 9. The Lord's going to appear a second time to Solomon. So could someone read uh, verses 1 through 9? As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. Okay, good. So the Solomon has finished building the temple. He gives this prayer of dedication, the benediction, the words of the people, and then the Lord appears in response to all this. And what is the tone of the message that he gives him? What's the Lord's tone in this message? Yeah. He, uh, he, he sets out, as he does so many times in the Old Testament, these blessings and these curses. Yeah. These, uh, you know, choose life or choose death. And it has to almost be frustrating for Solomon to think, okay, you know, I've, I've, I've done great. You know, can't I just kind of enjoy things now? Like every day, like you, you'll never stop having these choices in front of you. Yeah. And you can always in and of yourself, you, you can and, and will make the wrong choice unless you abide in me. Yeah, good. So, yeah, so it's this, almost like this warning tone throughout, right? Yeah, and we do th- see this theme of walking in obedience or walking in the way of wickedness. you got this choice, and it's, I think it's helpful the way you put it, it's just always a choice, right? Just because we've done something good in the past doesn't mean, all right, we're good now. Everything's okay. We'll always have this choice. So it's almost this tone of warning. There's Yes, I've heard your prayer, but be careful that you don't turn away now that you've done this. And what's the, what's the sin that he warns against? What sin does the Lord warn them against? Idolatry. Yeah, idolatry. Verse 6, he says, But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, as you not keep my commandments, my statutes that I've set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them. And then verse 9, And they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and lay hold on other gods and worship them, and serve them. So it's a warning against idolatry. Be careful that you don't go and worship other gods. And then what does the Lord say that they will lose if they forsake God? There's two explicit things and one that's more implicit. Verse 10, 
What will they lose if they don't obey? If they go and worship other gods? The land. Yeah, good. So the land, verse 7. I'll cut you off from Israel, from the land that I have given them. Good. What else? The temple will be destroyed also. Yes. The temple will be destroyed. Good. And then what's the other thing that's more implicit, I guess? be a time without kings yeah yeah in verse 5 he says so i'm going to establish your own over israel forever as i promised the lord as i promised david your father saying you shall not lock lack a man on the throne but if you turn aside so also lose the kingdom good so it's a, a message of warning and reminding them of the choice that they have to obey or disobey but it's also a message of love right so he tells them ahead of time, this is what's going to happen if you don't obey. It's kind of like when a parent tells a kid, you know, don't put your finger in the electric socket, right? They don't say that to be mean, they say it to be loving, right? But a parent tells a kid, okay, don't, don't touch the stove or don't, touch the, don't put your finger in the oven or put your hand in the oven. It's not because they're being mean, it's because they love them and they know what's best for him. So here we have the Lord He's warning them, but he's doing it out of love. He's saying, just be careful that you don't go after other gods. There are consequences, and I'm letting you know what's going to happen if you do. Well, let's turn over to chapter 11, where things don't go so well. So now we're at Solomon's fall, 1 Kings 11. All right, could someone read... Uh, verses 1 through 8. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away, turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord's God, as was the heart of David's father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. All right, so you see it's Solomon's old age now. He doesn't listen to the word of the Lord. Instead, he goes after other women. It's a big contrast from what we saw in chapter 3, right at the beginning, where it says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking the statues of David, his father. And now it says, chapter 11, verse 1, Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. So we see a big contrast here. And Solomon knew better, right? He's been warned. All the people really had been warned in Deuteronomy um, Deuteronomy, he says, you shall, Deuteronomy 7, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and you would be destroyed quickly. So that was a, a warning for all the people. And then Exodus 34, it also has a similar warning to the people. And then Deuteronomy 17 was specifically for kings. So there's been these warnings that this would happen. But instead, Solomon does not listen. He has many wives. And it's like a thousand women, if you count here. Um, A lot of times, you know, you'll hear people talk about how Solomon would often just make these marriage alliances. So maybe they weren't like living like he was his wife. But, um, But they were just more of marriage alliances. That may be true. That may be true. But I think the point here is that he was still turned away by them. It says he loved many foreign women. So even if that is true, and maybe, maybe he didn't really have a relationship with a lot of them, he still loved many foreign women, and his heart was turned away. 
It's also interesting mm-hmm. to note, most of the time, um, it says when it says, Solomon clung to these in love at the end of verse 2. Um, I heard Jason Seville say this, and I thought it was helpful. A lot of times that's used to talk about the women, that he clung to these in love. And I don't know Hebrew well, but Jason was saying, these in Hebrew is actually masculine. So it wouldn't refer to the women, which would be feminine. It would be feminine in that case. But it's referring to the gods, which is masculine. Solomon clung to these in love. So that's, that's sobering. So not only did he marry many women, which was wrong, but his heart was turned away to other gods. That was the main issue with marrying foreign women. It wasn't necessarily that it was wrong to marry someone who was not, who was uh, from another place, but it was more of what would result if you married someone who was worshiping another god. Your heart would be turned away. And that's exactly what happens. That's a strong emphasis in this, this section. Verse 3, turned his heart away. Verse 4, his heart after other gods. Then verse 4 again, his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Verse 5, he went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the, ab- the abomination of the Ammonites. So he goes after other gods. And then in verse 7, he built high places of worship for these gods. So he even builds places of worship for these gods. Solomon is no longer fit to be the king. He ignored what God told him in chapter 9. Notice here that it's not suffering that turns Solomon away. It's all the things that he has. It was a slow fate for him. And it wasn't just disobedience in these marriages. This is more of the culmination. Yeah. Just one, one point about, you know, were these just like alliances he didn't have relationships? But if you look at who is the mother of Rehoboam, who becomes king after mm-hmm. him, in First Kings uh, 14, uh, verse 21. So Rehoboam's mother's name was Nama the Ammonite. So it's okay. This is this is the, the, right. the queen mother here. Clearly not yeah. a, one of God's people. Right. This was more than just kind of a convenience diplomatic thing. Yeah, yeah. He definitely did have relationships with a lot of the women. That's yeah. That's very clear. And so this. Oh, yeah. Um, one thing I really liked about this was how, in the Old Testament, there's nobody who's more clear to me than Solomon, who was given wisdom, saw God twice in terms of the Lord appearing to him. And here's this man who's probably the wisest of all, whose heart turns away yeah. with a thousand wives, basically, 700 wives, 300 concubines. And it just emphasizes for me, like, the need that when the Lord, that the new covenant was so needed um, where the Lord would write on the hearts of those who were in the new covenant his commands and that he would give them a new heart as it says in Jeremiah 31 um, where he says that I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me um, that's just I, I just feel like if Solomon couldn't do it um, only the Lord could yeah you know, it's that whole phrase that Augustine uses that um, grant without command and command without will. Yeah, that's good. Yes, Solomon, the wisest of all the kings, and he still fell. So chapter 11 is actually just the culmination of everything that's going on. If you turn back into chapter 10, um, verse 14, it says, Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold besides that which came from besides that which came from explorers and from the businesses of the merchants. So that's just the 666 talents is around 50,000 pounds of gold in a year, not including what he got from, from the explorers. It just, it became almost an obsession with gold. Um, verse 21, all kings, all Solomon's king, all King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold and all the vessels of the house of the forest, Lebanon were pure gold. None were silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. And then if you look in verse 26 of chapter 10, and Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he had stationed in the chariot cities with the king Jerusalem. So he's already falling from what was um, commanded in Deuteronomy 17. This is more of just the culmination in chapter 11. And verses 9 through 11, I'm not going to read it, but we have the Lord is angry with Solomon. He's angry. He appeared to him twice, warning him he should not go after other gods. 
But because he did, he says he's going to tear away the kingdom from him. But there is a point of hope here. And we're going to look about that in the theological reflections, but we're going to go through these quickly. Um, So um, then you have at the end of chapter 11, Solomon dies. Um, But the theological reflections. First, sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. So in this this, uh, verses 9 through 13, the Lord tells him, all right, well, I warned you, I'm going to tear away your kingdom. But even in that, the Lord is gracious. Uh, but, so he's still going to give him, he's not going to take it all, all completely, and he's not going to take it all immediately. But there is consequences. What's going to happen is the kingdom's going to divide in two. So it's been a united kingdom of Israel, and then it's going to become a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And also, just interesting, I'll turn here and just read it quickly. Um, just the effect that Solomon's sin had, not only on himself, but on the people. Um, in Second Kings, chapter 23, Verse 13, it says, And the king, this is talking about Josiah, King Josiah, and the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon the king of Israel had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of, abomination of the Ammonites. So Josiah here is being praised for destroying the high places that Solomon built. This is the end of Second Kings. So, remember, Solomon's reign was around 930 B.C. That's the end of it. Josiah reigned 640 B.C. That's about 300 years. It took 300 years for Solomon's, these places of worship that he made for his wives, to be destroyed. His sin not only affected himself, but it felt affected others. It had a huge impact on the kingdom. So we should be very careful to think that our sin doesn't have consequences. The Lord's going to tell us, or Satan's going to try and tell us, um, it's not that big of a deal. Sin's not going to hurt you, or it's just going to hurt you. It's not going to hurt other people. It's the same lie that Satan has been telling since the Garden of Eden. He told Eve, you're surely not going to die. But that's a lie. Satan just says, just a little more. It's not going to hurt anything. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to hurt anybody else, but these are all lies. Second, Wisdom does not equal obedience. Dave was kind of mentioning this. This is the most wise man ever, probably apart from Christ. But it wasn't enough. Just because you are wise doesn't mean you're okay, and it doesn't mean you're going to walk in obedience. Now, to be clear, wisdom is important, and we should um, want it. We should yearn after it. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. We desperately need wisdom, and the more we're serving God, the more we're going to realize that we need wisdom. Probably won't have as much as Solomon. But God is still generous to give us good things like wisdom. But we should not rest in wisdom alone, and we should not rest in our own wisdom. Even Solomon fell. Third, God is faithful to his word. So remember in the prayers of Solomon, or the times that he's talking with the Lord, he keeps mentioning the ways that the Lord has been faithful, Right? He kept his promises to David. He kept his promises to Moses. He built the temple. But also notice that God is also, also faithful to keep his word about judgment. He warned Solomon many times that if you, fall, if you don't obey me, you will be cut off. He warned the people of Israel if they worship other gods, they will be exiled. And that's exactly what happened. So God is always dependable. We can always rely on what he says. But that's true not only for the sweet promises, but also for the warnings of judgment. God will always do what he says he will do. So we should be comforted by that fact, but also sobered by the fact that God is faithful to his word. And fourth, someone greater than Solomon is here. So in chapter 11, uh, verses, the, uh, verses 12 and 13, he says, Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, that's Solomon days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. And then if you look in chapter 11 at verse 36, yet to, this is talking to Jeroboam, who will rule the northern kingdom. Yet to his son, Solomon's, I will give one tribe that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. 
the city where I've chosen to put my name. And then in verse 39, and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. So the Lord is still gracious. He says that there's still hope for the line of of David. That promise, the the Davidic covenant, the Davidic promise, that still it still lasts. It still is here. But what's become clear is that Solomon is not this righteous, eternal king. He's not the one who's going to reign forever. There's going to be another one. The Lord would afflict the offspring of David, but not forever. Um, Could someone turn to Luke? Chapter 11, verses 31 to 32. Luke 11, 31 to 32. And if someone could read it when they get there. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So we didn't look at this story um, in, in the life of Solomon. But the Queen of Sheba, which is uh, modern day Yemen, she came by camel all the way just to hear about Solomon's wisdom. But there's one who is far greater than Solomon who has come. There's a king who's going to come from the line of David and from the line of Solomon, and he would rule forever as promised in the Davidic covenant. And this king, even though he's very rich, he would not have excessive gold and silver. He would actually make himself poor to make his people rich. And this king, he would not have a lot of forces or great military. Right? Today's Palm Sunday, right? And Jesus comes into Jerusalem before his death, and he comes on a donkey that he borrowed. So this king would not have many horses. And this king would also not have many wives. But he would have a bride that he loved, and he would give, him, give up his life for her. So Jesus is the true son of David. He's the one who fulfills that promise. It wasn't Solomon, but it was Jesus whose reign would last forever. So the whole point of Solomon's life was to point to a wiser, more righteous, more obedient, more faithful king. Someone that greater than Solomon is here. All right, lastly, application. So first is persevere. Persevere. Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3, 12 through 15. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end as it is said today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion Solomon began well at least somewhat well but he finished terribly so the life of Christians is not one of starting well, but it's one of ending well. The true mark of a Christian is perseverance to the end. So persevere. And also just be careful that you are not drawn away. Mark eight thirty six. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? We should be careful that we are also not drawn away. <clears throat> Currently, as Christians living in the United States, we are some of the richest people in the history of the world. So we should be careful and be on guard that money or riches or comfort or nice things do not turn us away from God. Beware of ways that Satan will try and tempt you to turn away. Beware of idols that are in your heart. And a heart divided is not a heart that is devoted to the Lord, right? You can't serve the Lord and you can't and money. So I would encourage you just to think about what am I tempted to turn away for? Or ask the Lord during your prayer time this week. Lord, what are, what are idols in my life right now? Or what are ways that I'm being tempted to turn away? And lastly, <clears throat> don't worry. Now, this wasn't necessarily an explicit application from, from today's lesson, but Jesus does mention Solomon again in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He tells his disciples, <clears throat> don't worry about your lives, what you're going to eat or drink, 
But he says to look at the flowers of the field. It's harder to do here. I'm from a rural place in North Carolina, so it's easier to do there. But look at the fields. When you see the flowers, that's clothing for the grass. He said, I gave them clothes, and they're going to be gone tomorrow. But even Solomon and all his wealthy was not arrayed like one of these flowers. So the grace is not... <clears throat> so it's quickly, it's gone here, not tomorrow. So God cares a lot more about us than he cares about the flowers. So don't worry, he will provide for us. All right. If anybody has any questions, I went over a little bit on time. But if anyone has any questions, they can talk afterwards with me. But I'm going to pray and then we'll close. <clears throat> Dear Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the book of Kings, for Chronicles. And we thank you for <clears throat> Jesus and that he is far greater than Solomon. We thank you that we have someone who we can come to as far wiser and far better, who did not fall into those mistakes. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to love Jesus more and see that he is far greater. I pray that you'd help us to love you more and worship you more and to have our hearts completely um, um, devoted to you. Help our hearts not to be divided. Reveal to us any idols that we have right now or ways that we're being tempted to pull away from you. Keep us devoted to you. Help us to walk in your ways. Pray that you would help us to persevere till the end. Help us to encourage one another to persevere. Lord, help, help us also not to worry about anything in this life, the things that we need. Help us to be reminded that you care for us and you love us. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. Now guide us as we go and worship you together. In your name I pray, amen.